Hey, welcome to The Magic Hour. I'm your host, Anthony Alvarado. We are going to be talking about zines today. What they are, how to make them, who makes them, who reads them, are they still around, and how are they still relevant? We'll be starting off with a chat with my co-host Jason Traeger. As usual, he's actually got a lot to say about zines. Then we'll be getting into a talk with two zine creators here in Portland, Oregon, that made literary zines. There's Martha Grover and Joshua James Amberson. And then finally, stick around for a great segment that we've got uh, investigative reporting on the scene in the mysterious Portland Mystery Hall, which uh, we'll find out. I don't even know what that segment is about yet, but we'll stick around and uh, we'll figure it out together. We wanted to uh, explore the topic of zines a little bit. Have you have you done much uh, zine? making work writing i cut my teeth in the zine scene man that was my uh teenage background my friend martin and i martin sprouse and i uh started a zine in san diego called leading edge it was a punk rock zine that uh i think i don't know how many issues we put out like seven or so but it had quite a wide circulation for that time we're talking about the mid 80s what's a wide circulation at that time oh i don't know what we pressed we had like offset printing with like a folded you know paper uh, uh-huh. uh newsprint with staples you know pre- yeah. coming back so like a high quality zine for that time um not a xerox deal okay and uh i don't know maybe 300 copies 500 you- something like that and and to steadily put them out for a period of time and we had interviews with all the biggest bands at the time and, mm-hmm. and just tons of bands and and it was, it's a well-respected and collectible zine now do you remember kind of like making the first one and being like not specifically mm. but it was a very cool experience it was kind of like in that era um to be there was like dudes that were in bands and then there was dudes that did zines or women or that did zines or were in bands and uh it was yeah definitely like that was our band was that zine right and and, uh yeah and it's and then martin went on to we both moved and worked at different times at maximum rock and roll fanzine in san francisco he became like pretty much the second or co what would you say editor producer of it with tim johannan who founded the magazine and that maximum rock and roll of course being the biggest punk zine Uh most influential and um yeah, the one of the ones. It was back then. It was Flipside and Maximum were the two huge zines. And so then, these were like big deal zines that that yeah were really. When you made that Very like big. the first couple few of them, did you have a feeling that like wow this is like this is working out? I'm making you know something that's turning out well. Like did you have kind of a feeling that it was a, a yeah successful... well just in the sense like we were teenagers and so it was <laughs> it was like having a band where like you go on tour and you play shows or whatever yeah. and you're like yeah I'm doing it this is what it is. And so in that respect, yeah, I had the satisfaction of, you know, we produced it, we made it happen, we put it out, we got rid of them. I mean, most of the copies we yeah. would get rid of, uh, give to people, sell, whatever. And that we were able to do it for enough time that it actually, you know, made an impact and had some uh, a reputation as being one of the better zines um, yeah. amongst a certain subset of punk people, probably. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was, it was good. We were we had enemies, people that didn't like us, you know, which is always a sign of success. Did, like they didn't so. like the way that you... Yeah, I mean, we had kind of a, you know, semi, letter. like it was, I don't know, ours was very like a positive. San Diego, 
punk scene at the time that we were involved in. It was a very, very fighty, very, uh -huh. very drunky, junky <laughs> scene. That was like a huge aspect of it. It was n known nationally as one of the so most So you guys violent. had like a nemesis or zine or... Uh, well, we were just a zine mm. of like, we were like kids who were like positive, you know, we yeah. were, we veered straight edge and we, we were definitely of the kind of like, let's, you know, shows that shouldn't just be like boxing matches, you know, it's yeah. like, it's tedious. It was terrible. I mean, people romanticize that era of American hardcore, but like there was super tedious aspects to the violence. Uh -huh. Like in San Diego, every single show was a knockdown, drag out slugfest, you know, with yeah, dudes. like just a big fight would break out. Oh, or just a bunch of little ones, but like uh -huh. enough that it was just so, you know, just constant and bands would get in fights with the audience. The shows would get canceled because there'd be huge fights. And, and it just, you know, when you're a kid and you just want to see all your favorite bands. Yeah, it's like, kind of, a bummer. Yeah, and like back then, you know, it's like here I get to see like, you know, Sam Hain in front of 200 people at this little hall, and yet these idiots who are just there to fight every <laughs> single week, same dudes every week fighting and, and just smashing it up. Uh, and it just, you know, it, it sounds kind of romantic uh, in, in some ways, but like it's terrible. It's so, so, so awful and boring sounds, and shitty. That sounds really crappy. Yeah. So our, so our zine, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, these guys are trying to change the scene, man. Uh -huh. You know, because we were like, yeah, maybe don't just be a drunk idiot who gets the show shut down. Yeah. And that was a controversial statement. Yeah, just kind of like the Sid Vicious contingent, you know, it was kind of more like, yeah, the way, that's not what punk's about, man. <laughs> punk's yeah. about beating the shit out of people and <laughs> knocking out some dude's teeth. And so whatever, but it was. Do you think that question has been uh, conclusively answered now? That What's that again? Whether punk's about beating the shit out of people or no? I don't know. <laughs> punk's whatever people want to make it. But to me, community and and whatnot and the network of punk was what it was about in that era as a teenager. Because the thing, the main point that when you talk about zines, mm -hmm. if there's if you're going to be editing this down and you're going to take it out a piece that like actually speaks to the zine subject in a way that's like interesting and unique from my perspective. Yeah. This is what I think was the most interesting thing about the zine culture of the early eighties, the beginning of American zine culture, really, even though there was predecessors in the seventies and stuff. I'm talking through punk and whatnot, but, um, the thing that it was that was made it so cool was that it was like having an internet before other people had an internet, like right. before other kids had an internet. Yeah. Because m me and my friends who were involved in punk and the zine culture and the the independent label culture, mail order culture, we had this connection that was so much bigger and broader, and it was like and it went all over the world, and we were able to. You know, it was much slower, of course, than the internet, but it had that thing where our world wasn't limited to just like, oh, my best friend is a kid I grew up with because right. he lives down the street. It's like, no, we could make a friend, you know, from the other side of the city or from another city. And, you know, I met my friend Martin, who I started Leading Edge with, um, and Pat Weekland, who we also, who was also starting it. I met them when I lived in Tacoma and they lived in San Diego. Right. Because I was pen pals with them. So when, as soon as I moved down there, they took me to see Social Distortion and Bad Brains, or B Battle, uh, Battalion of Saints the night I got down there. Uh-huh. And uh, we were fast friends ever since. But it was that, that was the thing that really was interesting about the zine thing is that I, looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, we always had that kind of world of it, it social networking. like a, a social network, a social community. Network. Yeah. It's just an analog social network, yeah. a non-digital social network and totally youth created also. And it was just, uh, you know, done through very analog means. And Xeroxes yeah, and because of postage. that, it's, it's able to, it was able to stay under the radar in a way. So that, underground. You know, internet can't, can't do because anybody can yeah can go on to oh uh, yeah any site yeah i mean kids young people will ask me sometimes like you know people uh you know in their 20s like do you think it's something like punk could ever like hardcore could ever happen again or punk you know american punk or whatever and i'm always like 
the answer is always the same. It's just like it, the world has fundamentally changed. The whole, th a huge component of that era was like pre-internet. That the fact mm -hmm. that it was pre-internet, hundred percent, because it was shaped by that. Yeah, because you had to seek out information. You know, in order, in order to get like a zine. Uh, you, you know, I would have to get on a bus, go up from like this, my dad's, where, <laughs> where my dad lived, like down into the university district, go to this one record store. And then you'd find like a, an issue of like, we got power fanzine for yeah. like a dollar that like, it was made like six months ago and it'll, you know, and you just pour through it and try and study what you can, but you had to just seek and kind of get, right. um, you know, your friends would direct you to things, people you'd meet, other kids would have different records than you have. Yeah. Records were hard to get. So it, so it was very, um, yeah, it took a level of like physical exploration of your space to get information to be a part of it and to understand what it was and that's and so the regional aspects were very strong you know it felt really different in different cities i was able to see all the cities in the mid 80s because i went on tour with the band seven seconds and saw the whole country as a kid in that era and and you know you'd really feel like punk looked different in in jacksonville florida than it did in right. new york and it looked different and because they're getting their message of what punk is from yeah a zine. and it's <laughs> and from their zines yeah. and and you know there was national zines like maximum and Flipside, but then for the most part the rest of them were regional ones put out just by kids in that town or in that area and uh, and then the bands, you know, one band might tour in an area a bunch and they become the biggest band there, you know, because there's certain areas where you'd go in, you know, the South and this band's the number one band. But then, mm -hmm. you know, if you go to a different part of the country, you're going to see a totally different band that like might be super popular. But it's just because they focused on that region and, and the regional things, of course, out the window and the Internet. Uh, yeah. Everything's flattened and. I don't know. It's interesting. It was just a time, but the, but the zine thing in particular, I thought was really a huge, um, kind of model or it was, a, it was interesting to see that look, looking back. Yeah. I guess when kids ask like, will we ever have that hardcore punk again or that, that kind of, um, vibrant scene, I guess what, what they're asking is how, how can you make something like that in the face of the internet where it's like that a subculture can't be, hidden under a rock you know it's like it's all, everything's under the microscope you know as soon as as soon as a new band um play some shows it's like you know anybody can access those that their songs on uh on Bandcamp or whatever right away and I yeah think that, i guess that's not an aspect of it the, the the scarcity of information or the uh the, I mean, maybe those can be built into programs and things to make things hard to find. But <laughs> at the same time, I think maybe that's just not the aspect of it now that it's just all about different. It's so much huger and broader and just, it's this just, yeah, so fractured and insanely, I think it's just about micro, micro interests and micro yeah. worlds. I was thinking about that last night because I was, I was thinking back, you know, I used to, uh, my access to the music that I'd be into was just like what was available in the Multnomah County Library when I was a teenager, and I, you know, couldn't afford to buy all the all the records and tapes that I wanted. Well, actually, no, I bought a lot of like crappy cassette tapes because they were in the bargain bin. So I grew up like like listening to stuff that I wouldn't have otherwise. But I, I'm like, I'm buying this because it's a dollar. Yeah. You know? Like I'm I'm gonna listen to all this Elvis Costello because it's a buck yeah. in the tape bin, you know. And and like, it's weird to think that how your choices of culture, of music, of of stuff like that is can be so influenced by just what's accessible to you as a oh, kid. Yeah. Well, back then it was yeah. a factor, not so much now. Yeah. Now it's yeah. You can, it's about your your 
ability to select and choose something. Like yeah. It's an more interesting like, playlist. More like curation, I yeah. guess. Everybody's a DJ, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the other really fascinating thing about zines is that to make those, you're making like the whole, you're the whole production team. You know, it's, you're not just writing it and doing the interviews and doing the research, but you're doing the, the promotion of it. You're doing the physical mailing and everything. Artwork. Yeah. The layout. We did the layout. We did all the interviews. We did the record reviews. I, I did all the cartoons and stuff. We, you know, made ads. We'd sell ads. We'd, yeah, we did everything. It was a huge, yeah. it's just like being in a band, except, uh, you know, you don't go on tour. Uh huh. Except to sell them and stuff, but you know, there's just so many things to do. Yeah, it was cool, and got you know, I met tons of people through that. It's just a way of like, yeah, networking too. Of course, having a zine, it's like you want to hang out, do things, meet people, yeah, get involved. That was the thing about punk. It's like the more you put into it, the more you got out of it. I guess it's true with life in general. Yeah. My guests today are Martha Grover and Joshua James Amberson, two Portland writers that I'm really excited to have here in the studio. We're going to be talking about creativity, writing, and the Portland writing scene. Um, I'm really excited to be talking with both of you guys today because you do so much. Um, between the two of you, I think there's there's teaching, there's zines, there's art, there's uh, zine distribution. So I kind of want to share with our listeners all of the different avenues and outlets that a person has um, to promote and publish their stuff. Um, so Martha, let's start with the projects that you're working on right now. You uh, write Somnambulist Zine. You had uh, One More for the People. Is that right? That's the name of my first book, yep. Which came out a, a while back. From 2011. 2011, and then you're working on something else. That... I'm working on another book um, with the same publisher, Perfect Day Publishing. Um, the publisher, Michael Heald, approached me again and said, why don't we do another book? Um, because four years have passed, and you've, I've written a lot in the meantime. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I started doing Somnambulist um, when I was 23, and that was over... 10 years ago. Wow. I'm not going to say how old I am, but uh, <laughs> it was a long time ago. And it was right after I graduated from the University of Oregon and moved to Portland. And, and I had been doing performance poetry before that. I'm an English major and I was in the creative writing program and I wanted to do something different because I was kind of sick of that mode of performance. And, um, I, someone turned me on to zines and I actually didn't know anything about zines. And a lot of people get started with that in high school and I was kind of came late to it uh -huh. a little bit. Um, and then just was just enamored with it immediately. And it was a really good way to have deadlines for myself, just, you know, imaginary deadlines that I just made up mm -hmm. and then it keeps you accountable to yourself. And then you have an audience as well. So how many issues of Somnambulist do you think you've made? Well, I, I, I don't think I have. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be doing my 27th here. Wow. The next issue is my 27th issue. Yeah. Amazing. So a lot. Yeah. And I don't remember which each one, you know what they mm -hmm. all were. So, mm -hmm. and some of them, I don't want to remember what they were. <laughs> <laughs> and let me also introduce to my right, I have Joshua James Amberson, who writes for the Portland Mercury and uh, also teaches at PCC, a few different writing classes. 
and is involved with the the Portland zine scene. I think you organized the zine symposium a few years. I have in past years. Yeah. And um, is there any other kind of major writing projects that uh, that people should be aware of? In um, in my world in, or the, in your in world, world. <laughs> yeah, um, in your world. Yeah, I uh, I always have a lot of projects going, and I don't know if people need to be aware of them <laughs> quite yet. Um, I might I might need to um, you know actually find a, well, a publisher for them yeah. or something before the people should be aware of those. <laughs> anyway, right off the bat, let me ask both of you. You can either of you can jump in. Do you think that it's possible to take on too many projects? I mean, that's something I struggle with as a writer. I want to, you know, I want to do poetry. I want to do manifestos. I want to write the great American novel. And I, I often, you know, I feel like a person with too many web browsers open. <laughs> yeah. You know? I, I, I feel like that all the time. Yeah. Um, where but is that I'm... necessarily a bad thing? Cause maybe that helps you find the, the thing that works, you know? Yeah. I think it takes a little longer to get there if you're, mm-hmm. you're you're spreading yourself thin and um and i'm finding that out where i'm like oh th- this this is another book or this is a chap book or this is a, a new issue of my zine and um yeah and then the, the the thing that i the one thing that i can actually uh bring to life is an issue of my zine and mm-hmm. then the rest mm-hmm. kind of um are uh in in draft form in permanent draft form at least so far mm-hmm. so and you both still actively make zines. Yeah. You do? Yeah. And what, Josh, you watch the name of your zine? Uh, the one it? I've been doing for the last um, 10 years, uh, almost 11 years now, is uh, called Basic Paper Airplane. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of uh, uh, a hodgepodge of things, but I, I call it a, maybe a, a liter- literary personal research zine. So it has <laughs> elements of yeah. kind of research and... Um, some things that would be in a personal zine, a per zine, and um, and then some kind, some sometimes some little flash bits and uh-huh. pieces. Um, I can I jump in on what the the question that you asked about do. Um, ideas. I find it can be overwhelming for creative people because we do have a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. And one thing I used to do, which I haven't been doing as much now, but I might get back into, is I used to just jot everything down and have a list. And then, like, I would cross things off the list, and then I would rewrite the list. And then, like, whatever I hadn't done get done would be transferred to the next list. But then it's like, you kind of, it's a kind of a good way to weed out bad ideas because mm-hmm. you keep writing the same idea down over and over yeah. again, and you never have that passion to, like, actually do it and then you realize like oh i'm never gonna do it because (laughs) i'm not really don't really care that much about this idea right you know so i found that that was a good way and also i think too it's like if we can just realize that like as creative people we're always going to have more ideas so that you don't feel so possessive Mm -hmm. like a lot of times people be like i don't like to talk about my ideas because people are going to steal them and it's like no one's going to steal your ideas (laughs) like no one's going to do that yeah well that was that was a really freeing realization for me as a writer was to come to the point where i I realized i'm not gonna i i get more ideas than i'm possibly going to actually bring Mm -hmm. to completion so you know it kind of just frees you to frees you up yeah. Go with the ones that, that you want to use right. at that moment. Right. So it sounds like for both of you, zines are kind of how you got started with writing, but they've opened up different doors along the way, mm-hmm. but you still kind of return to zines as, as a great way to, to get your writing out there. Um, do, you, do you view zine writing as like a bit of a practice space because it's so you can just kind of make it on your own? 
or um, okay, I'll go ahead and answer this. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to compare like where Joshua is at and where I'm at in our mm-hmm. lives because we are have a lot of similarities but also differences. Like, um, I you know went to school for writing. I got my master's in writing, and then I then I realized through trial and error that I actually don't really like teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like it, but I also find it very taxing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because I have like health issues and stuff, and it's just like very draining for me. Um, Whereas Joshua, you can talk about that. You've been teaching, you know. So um, now I'm a real estate agent. And so that's something that has nothing to do with writing. Um, And so these big questions of, you know, have the zines on one hand and then I have like this academia on the other hand and, and, and kind of, you know, navigating between those. And basically where I'm at now, I also have a website where I put a lot of my writing too. It's a blog, but it's also like a website. What's your website? Uh, Somnambulacine.com. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, so I have my zine, I have my website and then, you know, I have books and I've also had people approach me to do things like book reviews or like, you know, author interviews and stuff like that. Or like, I don't know, pop culture stuff. And I'm realizing more and more and more that like, I don't have a passion for writing except about like very few topics. Mm-hmm. And and so it's really, I'm really never going to be able to be a professional writer because to be a professional writer, you have to write about stuff that you don't really necessarily care that much about, you yeah. know? And we so, want you to do a piece on bowling alleys. Right. Yeah. And I just don't have it in me to do yeah. it. And I know that sounds a little privileged, but also just like <clears throat> it's recognizing my shortcomings. So, and I also don't want to teach. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And it sounds like through like, the zine kind of world here in Portland, people found out about your writing and have approached you. Yeah, that's like, how the publisher found my writing. Was I feel like zine. everybody in Portland knows Martha Grover. Like when I'm talking to people <laughs> about <laughs> writing projects, like, oh yeah, Martha Grover. <laughs> she does that zine. Yeah, that's great. I'll also add that um, your publisher found it at the library. Yes, that's right? awesome. Yeah, yeah Multnomah so. County Library. Yeah, well, they, that's they how, buy zines at the Zine Symposium every year. That's how Michael Hill yeah, he found out came about. across one of my zines. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's really, cool. it's really cool. Let's talk about the Zine Symposium right now. That's something you've both been involved with, and it happens here in Portland in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I went to last year's, and it was um, it's a big kind of convention with different tables with people representing their own zines. And I really liked going last year because Portland's been changing so much. Um, with gentrification and it's becoming more and more crowded. And I felt like when I went to the zine symposium last year, I felt like I had stepped back in time to like an older version of Portland, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. It just, it felt punk and it felt like, mm-hmm. oh, th- these are my people. I recognize all of this, you know? Yeah. Um, so I love that. Uh, let's, let's talk about the zine symposium really quick. Yeah. Well, this year will be the 16th year. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Portland Scene Symposium, which I think makes it the longest running in the country. Cool. Um, and um, and so I'm I'm really on the outskirts of, of you know uh, what what we call through through the Zine Symposium an auxiliary organizer. So I'm mm-hmm. kind of um, just uh, helping from afar. Uh, but they, a lot of the longtime organizers stepped away this year, including myself and uh, or took a big step back at least and um and it kind of looked like it wasn't going to happen oh wow um and and this is a thing that we've come up against as organizers and is there's is there some reason behind that or it was just it's so much of a time commitment uh so much of a time commitment it's a lot of work mm-hmm. it's a lot of work that's not paid mm-hmm. yeah and and um 
you know, the people that have been the core members have been doing the most of the majority of the work for many, many years. And I think we did put out a call to the the community, like, hey, if people don't step up, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And like what you're saying, that feeling you get, like people love that event and yeah. I love it. And it's a great event. And to think that it's it'd just be heartbreaking, you know, for it not to happen. And I was really pleased that so many people came out of the woodwork. People really did. Yeah. So now it's going on. Yeah, It's going oh, on sure. and with mostly a new crew of organizers who are really passionate and doing great work. Yeah. Um, yeah, in past years when we had a solid um, group of longtime organizers, it would what we'd find is that if when we'd put a call out for for more organizers, people would, um, you know, they they were kind of like it's going to happen no matter what. That's so yeah. <laughs> so you know it's just a staple of Portland. It just happens magically, yeah. um, and it's going to happen whether I help or not. Santa Claus right. is going to show up and put the presents on your Right, tree. yeah, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and Alex Reck, who's um, the longest organizer, she she wanted to do it this year, but she wasn't going to do it by she herself. She does the Stolen Sharpie Revolutions. That's, that's, um, that's her book, and then that's she does um, a long-running zine called Brain Scan, and she also runs a um, Portland Button Workshop um, okay. on... Uh, Killingsworth and Interstate, and um, and that's a, lo- a physical location you can it, go into. It is, yeah. The, um, she sells uh, zines and some books, and then she makes custom buttons. That's the mm-hmm. bulk of the business, and um, and so yeah, she put a call out. I was like, look, it's just not going to happen if we don't mm-hmm. get some people, and people really came out, and um, so really happy. Uh, didn't I think. I think uh, people would have had uh, a strong reaction if it didn't happen yeah, that this summer. You know, I, I'm, I I'm one of those people that, yeah, I just kind of think, well, somebody's going to make right. that happen. And, 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 and as an organizer, show up and enjoy it. <laughs> and as an organizer, I think that about other yeah. large events that I go to. I did, you know, until I was an organizer, I didn't, I didn't look at it as, oh, this, you know, a lot of work went into making this festival happen. I'm like, oh, it happens. It happens it, annually. And, and it really, as somebody who's lived in Portland for a long time, I really feel like it, it's just a part of Portland summers, the zine symposium mm-hmm. and like all of the kind of extra peripheral stuff that would happen around that. Yeah. Um, it, it used to be that I would, I would go to that and then, oh, there's an after party. There's, we're biking to this. There's a show mm-hmm. here. There's a picnic here. And there's just kind of all this crazy energy involved around it. Um, so this, I, yeah, this year it's happening on July 9th and 10th, just FYI. So mm-hmm. everyone knows Ambridge Event Center the first day and the IPRC the second day. Cool. Sorry, I interrupted. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. Yeah. Um, good to get that information out there. Let's talk about, you both have been involved in the Portland zine um, culture for so long. Are there some um, zines or zine creators that you want to give a shout out to just as like to new listeners that maybe haven't been around in the Portland zine scene as long? What's like we mentioned Alex Rec, like what are some kind of standout zines that you feel like are mm. a part of the the kind of history of the culture Ooh, here? No, I wish I would have thought about that before. <laughs> <laughs> or just uh, off the top of your head, one or two even. Oh, uh, well, like, um, I just think of like my friends here. So, sure. so it'd be Alex and Joshua and then Katie Ash, who does like a travel zine mm-hmm. um, where she draws. She actually started drawing. That's the thing I really like about zines is like, it's so punk and it's so DIY. Yeah. So it's like, 
people don't have to feel like they're a quote unquote writer or a quote unquote artist. They can mm-hmm. just like teach themselves. And mm-hmm. she just decided because she has a friend called Hopscotch Sunday who does comics. He was like, just start drawing every day. And so she did. And so like, I've been able to witness these like drawings that started out really crude and then like evolved into something that's actually pretty good Yeah. over the course of like the last two or three years. It's funny really thing. Cool. If, if you do something every day for two or three years, exactly. it tends to get pretty you dang get, good. You pretty get, yeah, you get pretty good <laughs> at it. Um, so yeah, that's, so yeah, I guess that would be my answer to that question. Joshua. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now aside from <laughs> who we mentioned and then the people that I'm coming to have yeah, either, um, move have moved away recently. Well, do you feel so. like yeah. there's an yeah. evolution that's happened com- like older m- zines and then the newer stuff that people are doing now? Do you, do you feel like there's been a, any kind of sh- major shifts in, in style or content or is it kind of the same vibe? Hmm. Does that make sense? Like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I started doing zines um, after the heyday, really. What's, yeah. you know, considered the golden age pre-internet. Yeah. So I think if, if I had been around before, I would have been able to answer that question a little bit better. But I, always, I also feel like the people that stick around doing zines, like, there's always a personal connection of why they do it. They're uh-huh. not doing it to be famous. They're uh-huh. not doing it to make money. You know, and so it's more about community and having a personal connection and um, with other zinesters and, you know, why you're, a lot of people write about mental health issues. A lot of people write about gender issues and, you know, trauma that maybe they don't want to have out on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel like there are people that kind of like try it out and then they realize like, oh, I'm never going to like make any money off this. And then you just never hear from them again. <laughs> people, you know, it isn't People are like, this is a get rich yeah, quick scheme. <laughs> or, and it's not even like their zines are bad or they're like do art zines. It's like, they're really cool, but they just... You know, I, we just yeah. never hear from them again. I know this one guy who kind of every time you run into him, he's got like all these zines that he made. And you get the feeling that he made like five copies and he's just like, here, take these zines. <laughs> and they're crazy. There's like these googly drawings and stuff yeah. and they're awesome. Yeah. And it's just something that you can just kind of, you know, make so right. easily. Right. Um, but do, do you feel like there's a, there's much cross pollination between zines? And I know that Portland really has like a big comic um, scene. And then there's also, you know, there's a lot of poetry. Do you feel like there's, the zines provide like, uh, cross pollination between these different kind of genres or? Um, in some ways. Yeah. Um, I, I mean the, the comics or underground comics Mm -hmm. scene, um, you know, often, what they produce are zines. Um, but my, I mean, the, and it crosses over at, you know, there are comic artists, comic zinesters at the Portland Zine Symposium. Um, but there are also comic festivals mm-hmm. too, or, or kind yeah. of more art book festivals. So there's, um, they cross over and they're, but can also, be in different scenes at the same time. I feel like it's, you know, or... yeah, it's something that I've noticed with the with comics is that people will just be kind of making making something that they're making as a zine. You know, they're making it at Kinkos or whatever, and then um, you know, sometimes it'll it'll kind of progress to get its own life either on the internet or collected as a book or something like that. Yeah, um, I'll I'll say backing up just slightly that. Though I didn't start making zines, um, how'd you get started with writing? Um, well, I um, I 
I started reading zines when I was um, uh, in middle school in the in the nineties, um, and um, and so I have seen the evolution from then. But then, um, and it took. Uh, I ran a, a small um, a, a poetry press mm-hmm. out of Olympia in the early 2000s. And, um, was that antiquated future? Or that um, no, it was a sep- separate thing. It's called SSO Press. Okay. And, um, and it would put a ton of work into it. It was a huge project. We were a nonprofit and, um, and kind of died out after four or five years. Um, but, and then when it was dying out, then I was like, well, I've been taking, we were essentially, we were calling them chat books, but, mm-hmm. um, a lot of what we would produce were, were zines, um, you know, yeah, it's literary hard, scenes. Hard to tell and, the difference between a chat book and a yeah, scene at the Yeah. Yeah. Um, O'Malley said something the other day. She's the head of the IPRC where mm-hmm. she said that chat books are not, um, zines because chat books, someone else publishes it for you and a zine you publish yourself. Mm-hmm. But I've heard people use those two so interchangeably that it's like, I think it is good to have a definition, but if no one uses the definition, then it's like, what's the point of, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, my... People like zines have, it could be a pejorative too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like people are like, well. And, and they... we thought that during, I mean, even though I'd been reading zines forever, I, um, I wanted, we wanted to what we did to be taken seriously. Exactly, and um, right. and so we we didn't call them zines. So that's, and, it's like the poetry yeah. chat books are like looking down on the zines kind of. Oh, oftentimes, yeah. <laughs> sure. um, yeah. Yeah, and, and we sure did. And, uh, <laughs> and, and which is funny to say now because, uh, because I love zines so much. And, yeah. um, and then when that was kind of dying down, that's when I started my zine where I was like, I'm sick of being so serious about this. Uh-huh. And um, and not that it was just thrown together. I did put a lot of time in the first issue of my zine, but I did, um, I was like, I, I'm going to write about whatever I want to write about and, um, and just kind of uh, write things that, that might not have a home in any of my other projects. And then, and that's just, how that started and um but I, I will say that that over the years in the 20 some years i've been reading zines uh, they really have changed and the biggest thing for me is a as a production quality thing mm. where in 1995 they were um you know xerox yeah stapled together and folded and yeah yeah and i mean it still <clears throat> are but um you know uh the the images and you know it, mm-hmm. it was oftentimes hard to read a zine mm-hmm. it was it still know. is yeah <laughs> i mean mine are sometimes hard to read no because but, of i mean the technical like how i just it's put am together. so bad at that i mean mine still look like crap i got yeah. the last two episode or not episodes issues design the covers are designed but the guts are still bad you know so. <laughs> but no they're actually but it's kind of like who cares i guess it's like a zine is just well it does matter because sometimes i think people won't pick it up if it doesn't look good so that's why they got the covers designed so it, it might not yeah. be uh you know aesthetically but i'm talking about actually just being legible right you know, in, in, in 1995 <laughs> just a yeah. crown uh, like some zines 
you would you would get them. You'd send your two dollars and get them Am in the I mail. Am I supposed to be able to read this? And and it would just be like so badly <laughs> yeah. put together, and and images would be a text would be laid over images uh-huh. yeah. in these really like just not thought out ways and you I I wouldn't actually be able to read what it's most mm-hmm. of what it said. And so that's that's a big difference. I mean mm-hmm. that that's just yeah. Yeah, that wasn't all zines by any means. Yeah. But you know, that uh I see well, there's ver- a little more quality control. Now. I see very few zines that look like a mid nineties zine uh-huh. coming out in twenty sixteen. That'd um, be kind of a fun zine though to make one that's just like it's mid nineties and you can hardly even read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah no. style flashback I make I'm making my first zine right now actually I'm wow. collaborating with this artist friend of mine NDA who lives in Philly and we're making a zine about uh, magic mushrooms uh-huh. that we're putting together and it's the sort of thing like I don't know if I'd feel comfortable trying to put that out in a more right. kind of published way but yeah. it's like a fun way to yeah you know <laughs> um well, you see that too, where people are like now in the internet age, where people are like, maybe it's not a good idea that everyone in the world right. can read this. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, know maybe I want to limit the yeah. audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Um, it's funny though, because the one time that I've made like a chat book, uh, and we called it a chat book, but it was like me and a, another poet friend worked on this thing together. And we were just like, well, it's a chapbook. So we were very painstaking, like it was hand sewn with like waxed thread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Took way too long to make like 20 copies. Right. Um, yeah. And I think we're like, precious. well, well, that's, yeah, yeah, that was very precious. We're never going to do that again. <laughs> Our fingers are bleeding. So, <laughs> but it, yeah, it, it almost becomes like, I went to something recently at the Ace, Ace Hotel, the cleaners yeah. thing where there's all these, I felt like there were books. I wasn't oh, sure. Oh, what's there... the event? Um, what is that? If event? not for kidnap. No, it was. A, it's like a, it's like a literary fair, right? Yeah, where people are selling, books. selling their um, books. Oh, um, Michael tabled at it. Now I can't remember what the name of it is. Yeah, that's right. He was there. Yeah. Yeah. The it uh, happens in December. Uh, the publication gonna, studio event. I think that's what. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I can't. Well, remember. I was going to bother was gonna, me now. We don't need to think of the yeah. name because <laughs> I was going to talk a little trash about it. <laughs> I felt like like all these books were just so precious. Like in. On the one hand, I get that. It was it was like the the zine or the chapbook or the whatever you want to call it, the object was like an object of art, you know, that mm-hmm. but you almost were afraid to pick it up and like flip through it because it, it seemed like it was more about the physical object of the the thing, you know, mm-hmm. than the the writing or the story or the message. And to me that felt off putting because I feel like as a writer, I want to connect with people. I want mm-hmm. people to to get something from what I'm what I'm trying to communicate from the writing. And these just felt like that get that somehow got like in the way for were, you, or yeah, I felt well, I, it felt like the the physical object of the the zine or the book, the manuscript was more important than the writing. Mm. Um, Some are quite fragile. Yeah, <laughs> like it was. You know, it's like a little. It's made out of. Some special gauze and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm in a book club now. I just started mm-hmm. a book club a couple months ago, and like I'm finding myself getting most of the books on Audible. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know what I mean. So it's like I I get what you're saying, but at the same time, like if you're gonna make an object, it 
maybe because you don't have to anymore, right? That's like, true. Theoretically, That's so true. it well, might think, as well look good. Yeah, I don't know. It's like fetishization of yeah. the, of the object. Because yeah. yeah, now you could, you know, it's kind of like vinyl versus MP3. Right. You know, it's free right. somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, do you guys feel like Portland, there's something about the Portland culture that's conducive to to zines or to creativity? You hear so much about people saying Portland's this great creative town. Let's all move there. Do you, is there really something? Is it something in the water? Uh, do you feel like there's a supportive scene here for creative? Well, I've been to a number of zine symposium or zine fairs in other mm -hmm. cities. Yeah. So I don't feel that that Portland is as unique as maybe it used to be because mm -hmm. the LA Zine Fest is great. I went mm -hmm. to the one in Chicago. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. um, I've been to the one in San Francisco. It was really good. Um, you know, so I, I actually, I think it's, I don't, I don't know. I just don't feel like Portland's at that unique anymore. And, and on one hand, you can say there is this, all this, not just zines, but like cool art stuff going on here mm -hmm. because it was more off the beaten path mm -hmm. and not in the national, you know, limelight as much as it is now where the stakes are lower. And so it doesn't really matter what you do. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's so much true anymore. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. I would say not, it's not unique in its zine scene, okay, uh, especially. Um, I mean, it's it's not singular in mm -hmm. that, at least. You know, I mean, there there are these these hubs around the country w where with just as thriving of a zine community. Mm -hmm. I I would say the literary community. I mean, that's what I finally I had one foot here for maybe seven or eight years before I moved here. I mm -hmm. lived in Olympia for eleven yeah. years before this, and um and Everyone, and what finally broke me, what, what finally got me down to, to, move be, down to be all the way here was um, the literary community. Mm -hmm. And um, and what I think differs in that is that it's so, um, that you can, you, you can easily be a part of it. Not necessarily, you won't exactly, you know, get asked to do readings right away or mm -hmm. anything, but that you can meet your favorite authors here in Portland, yeah, I mean, even the biggest names in in Portland, you know, mm -hmm. you you can um, you can run into them, and there's not this. Um, that is true. You, there's yeah. not there's not this. Um, you know, I the even in Seattle, really, the 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 kind of famous authors or the most popular authors in the scene are, are kind of um, they they have this remove. There's they feel a, out of reach. Yeah, out of reach. They're yeah. they're like um, they're like stars you know they, they have this little yeah. fame that that portland just just sidesteps completely and mm -hmm. and that you can um you know you can be at the the reading with the famous author and it's not a big thing it's yeah. just it's just i feel like we're really lucky to have pals too mm -hmm. like i did yeah. a reading yeah. last year at pals and one at elliott bay mm -hmm. and pals the, there was just so much more energy mm -hmm. you know and i used to live in seattle um but yeah, there is some, there's a more kind of connectable literary scene. I and feel that's like why there. I feel like port, bookstores are so important to zines yeah. and the literary community because they, there are, you know, there's annual events like, you know, um, the zine symposium or Wordstock, but really the backbone of the community is always going to go back to the bookstores. Mm -hmm. 
um, because they're going to draw in people that don't normally go to literary events more yeah. so than because there's a lot of reading series that go on. Mm-hmm. But if you're not part of the scene, you wouldn't necessarily know. Mm-hmm. But if something's happening at Reading Frenzy or at Pals, like you can tap into that if you're not already part of that community, you know, so yeah. it's really important. I think that's a great point. And um, and if um, if your listeners have not gone to a local author's book release at the downtown Pals or even at, mm-hmm. at the uh, Hawthorne Pals, but it's really pronounced if you go to a local author's book release at downtown Pals, so many people come out. Yeah, I mean, like standing room only. Standing room only, yeah. um, hundreds of people packed in, and it's just so great to see. I mean, I love going to... Yeah. to uh, those events whenever possible because for nothing if for nothing else then just to feel that energy of how many people in this community not necessarily are involved with the the literary scene but that are passionate about it are passionate Mm -hmm. about books about um seeing local authors and really supporting that scene and and i think because that space is so accessible and that people don't have this um this kind of like you're talking about the local reading series and mm-hmm. we have so many great reading series here in Portland mm-hmm. but that that you wouldn't really you might feel uncomfortable tapping into it if you mm-hmm. you didn't have a connection to it mm-hmm. um and that that the downtown pals is so accessible to so many people that that people feel comfortable going there for a reading and and it might be the one place that they they feel that they can kind of access the local lit scene there's also a lot of um just really vibrant kind of smaller like you can go to a reading at mother foucault's or mother foucault's is great uh the waypost or I went valentine's to is valentine's, also a really good one yeah. mississippi records yeah. mm-hmm. um and you're in this a tiny little place and mm-hmm. it's just packed to the gills mm-hmm. and people are there to also reading frenzy chloe mm-hmm. udali the owner she yeah. does periodic zine readings where she'll just invite people that just did a new zine and it's really cool because you never know what it's going to be mm-hmm. in a good way like that you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> not in a bad way <laughs> and she are, has, she are there has any... a lot of authors yeah. um mm-hmm. come through too and a lot that you maybe used to live in portland or, mm-hmm. or used to be um part of part of the more of part of the zine scene or now writing mm-hmm. novels and yeah. and you know so um it reading frenzy is a good place to um kind of see these intersections yeah. the intersections the interse- yeah, sure, and yeah. you're you're asking about the lit scene and zine mm-hmm. scene mm-hmm. Um, intersecting, and that might be a good place. And the comic scene, because she has a gallery yeah. in the uh, back and and like, carries a lot of comic art and well-designed yeah. books, that it, that might be a, a good place to kind of access the, the three worlds or see the w- three worlds coming together. Yeah. And people yeah. are really so approachable at, at those events. Yeah, um, it's true. I mean, I, I love it when somebody comes up to me after a reading and is like, hey, that was cool. It's like, that's, you know... Please go yeah. mob people after yeah. after readings. <laughs> yeah, they, they love it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your guys's writing process. Where do you get inspiration? Do you have like a writing um, a routine, or is it just kind of you wait for the the moment to strike you? I know that you you teach a lot of classes on this. Do you feel like that's influenced oh, Josh? I'm pointing at Josh. Uh-huh. Then you just can't see <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. Josh teaches at PCC, so if you're a Portlander and you want to get um, get into writing more. That's a great thing to check out. But yeah, where do you do you have? Do you feel like you've kind of evolved a writing routine or or habits that help you to be inspired? Um, well, I try 
to, um, and for the most part, do write every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really bad at the setting at exact time or an amount of time for that mm-hmm. or when that happens. Oftentimes I've, I'm writing on a, on a bus trip or, mm-hmm. you know, in between things and it's not the ideal. Uh, and someday I'd like to get there where I can actually force myself to set aside, you know, a, uh, a few time. hours yeah. every day for it. Um, but it's, I, I do end up writing every day and that's, that's changed a lot of things. Um, but as far as the inspiration, um, I feel like, like we were talking about earlier that there's no shortage mm-hmm. of ideas or projects and I'm a big project person, like where I like having, I'm like, oh, this, this is, um, kind of, uh, a, uh, if I look at it as as parts of a whole, mm-hmm. then um, then I get a lot more excited than if I'm working on a single essay or short story. Like um, if you're thinking this is part of a collection of essays. yeah yeah yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. I uh, so I oftentimes think in terms of projects, and um, it might be why. I don't get a whole lot done. Um, <laughs> at least, well, in, in why, the, why is yeah. it that you wouldn't get more done if you were project oriented? Uh, I guess I think of too many projects. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you start too many things and then yeah. you don't finish them. Well, yeah. you you write for the Portland Mercury, Josh. Yeah. Is mm-hmm. that um, does that kind of keep the the wheel spinning? Because you you do you always have deadlines and things in the yeah no it's great the um, pipeline yeah before I've been writing for them for a little over two years now um, and just as a freelancer um, there, there are a lot of freelancers through them and, uh, mm-hmm. but I write um, not every week um, but um, but at least every other week for them um, and. Um, and before that, I did a lot of freelance writing, and I would write for a whole um, slew of magazines and online journals and things. And um, and that they had looser deadlines because it, it they'd be like monthlies or quarterlies or you know online only. Whenever and, we get and, to it. And so um, so coming and working freelancing for the Mercury. Um, has been um, great and a and a complete lesson in the weekly paper thing what, with, what's with it deadlines. Like, do, <laughs> do you guys um, like when I try to picture writing for the Mercury? Do you guys is it kind of like I don't know? Um, I'm thinking of like for some reason I'm thinking of like Superman and Spider Man have day jobs working for uh, uh-huh. news yeah, weeklies. Uh-huh. Is yeah. it like a bunch of journalists like all sitting around a table eating pizza and there's like a tough guy that is yelling mm-hmm. at you guys? Like uh, I mean. Most, I want to find out the truth yeah. about. Uh, I mean, I would Underwood. say most of the freelancers <laughs> maybe haven't even been to the office really? or met the uh, <laughs> editors they work under. Um, maybe most is not true, but um, but I, I work well, for them. That, that fantasy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a good it's a good size office actually. Uh, but I worked for them for maybe a, a year before I met any of my editors. Um, so, um, Martha, what's yeah? What's your creative process? Well, like? I think it's changed a lot. Um, I think going and getting my English degree and then being around a lot of people that were kind of on the academic track and going and getting my master's. I mean, I had teachers, I had professors, and when I got my master's, I said, you must write for this many hours a day. Mm -hmm. 
And I just don't really buy into that. I, I do think, though, I will say just generally, I kind of you could make the analogy of just being physically fit. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you have a goal of being a writer, if you have a goal of being physically fit. Obviously, if you work out every day, you're going to get more physically fit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you can play basketball. You can take a swim. So getting yourself to a place of physical fitness is really the point. And then what you do with that is fine. And I feel like that's true for every art form. Like, I went through a period of my life where every day I did get up and I would write for two to three hours. And I did that for like three or four years. I got myself to a physical fitness level. Now, there may be times, which I'm working on my second book right now, where I might have to go back and get in the gym a little bit <laughs> because I may I have lost some analogy. of that physical fitness. It. But it's about learning how to think like yeah. a writer. Yeah. And I draw as well. And it's I went through when I started drawing. It was when I was very ill. And so I didn't do a lot except sit in, on the couch and watch TV and draw. Mm-hmm. And I just saw myself improve so much Mm -hmm. and yeah I might have lost some of those skills I might have to go back and do that but you know it's about learning how to to see as a artist Mm -hmm. and it's learning how to think like a writer you know and so but I don't really like this whole like you must do this every day or like whatever yeah because it's it's really self-sabotaging and it can keep you from writing at all yeah because then you think oh my god I'm not of quote unquote writer because I'm not doing this thing you know that's a wonderful analogy I, I think that's so true for me when I feel like my writing kind of took off and I began to feel satisfied with how how I wrote it came after I did this thing called the Seinfeld method where <laughs> <laughs> like what? somebody this is the story somebody asked Jerry Seinfeld like at a sh- at a comedy show like a wannabe comic is like hey Jerry how'd you get so good and he's like I'll tell you what you got to do get a calendar get one of those calendars that has a day for you know a square for every day of the mm-hmm. year and every day that you work on your comedy routine x off a day and after a while you'll have this chain of days don't break the chain you know, it's like a Seinfeld oh, quote. Uh-huh. So I, I did that with writing. I was like, I'm going to write at least an hour a day. And af- I did that for several months. And, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting really good at this yeah, because uh-huh. I'm putting in the time. Right. It's, it's really, it's that simple yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. I completely agree with you, Martha, that there's, um, there's just no one way. And now for a special segment to close out the hour, I'm going to hand you over to Brandy Gaudet, the show's producer. She went in person to look at the Portland Mystery Hole. Every year in August, Baron Mine hosts his annual meteor shower party in his backyard. It may sound quaint, but Barron's backyard is home to the Woodstock Mystery Hole. You're alerted to this right away when you approach his house. There's a giant sign that simply says HOLE in colorful letters, all caps. What's the Woodstock Mystery Hole? I asked Barron to tell me. There are many questions about the Mystery Hole that we've not answered, which is why we call it a mystery. And the origins is one of the most mysterious aspects of it. Where did it come from? Why is it there? There are many theories, and one of them might be true. I I don't have a a set theory yet. I kind of like all of them. Uh, You know, a bomb shelter from the 50s, uh, an ancient Indian kiva, uh, aliens from another planet, maybe, or maybe somebody just dug a hole. 
The party itself was beautiful and strange. Everyone was warm and accepting, gregarious, and ranged in age from babies to silver hairs. I sort of got the feeling I was at a family reunion where I didn't know anyone. The place was set up with all sorts of fanciful adventures. Behind a tall hedge, there's a bridge that you need a ladder to get to, and once you're up on the planks of the bridge, there's a fake fireplace with a picture hanging above it in the hedge. Nothing else until you get all the way to the other side where there's a fireman's pole and next to it, there's a basket of gloves to prevent pole burn. A new feature this year was the funnel of love and rebirth, which was basically a corrugated pipe with curtains on either side. And there's two staircases leading to nowhere, just right into the wall and a boat that you can reach only by ladder. It's 10 feet in the air and you can sit in it and just row to your heart's content. Then there's the hole itself. A forced perspective ladder makes it look like it's pretty deep. There's a wheelbarrow at the base, but when you climb down the ladder, you realize the ladder is just getting smaller and smaller. And there's a toddler-sized wheelbarrow at the bottom. The hole contains concrete with strange hieroglyphs pressed in. Some visitors try to interpret their meanings. I think you just found it. I think it's just a mystery. It is very mysterious. Mm-hmm. I know this writing, but I forgot what it was. If you thought about it really hard, you might remember what it means. They, they, they say it could be the product of an ancient civilization. Do you think if you put your hand right in there and thought about it, you might remember? The yep. problem is, it says nightfall becomes dust time. Oh. But that's not, that's not a good sign about nighttime. There's a rock wall and various treasures that people have placed there. Faded figurines, bottle caps, scattered and broken pottery on the ground. It became apparent to me that the actual experience isn't what made going through these different features so appealing. It was just letting go. Not taking yourself seriously and just having fun in such a pure form. So what kind of person would turn his backyard into such a place? A man dedicated to fun. Have fun, make fun, be fun. So the idea is to follow the way of fun, which is three easy steps. First, you have some fun, because if you don't have any fun, you aren't going to be able to make fun for others to have. And as far as being fun, we, we become one with fun when we're making fun for others to have. Not always, but sometimes it just happens. You know, it's kind of like falling in love or You know, you can't fake it or or having a good laugh. It's like it's the real thing and you don't say, I think I'm going to have a good laugh today. Well, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But in the meantime, you can have a lot of fun. That's what I like to do is make fun for others. An admirable aspiration to try to make fun for other people. But what does Baron like to do for fun? Well, I like to play nude croquet. That that might be one. Yeah, that, that that is a lot of fun. So if you're lucky enough to come across an invite, have a friend that can get you in, or happen across Baron handing out homemade pamphlets at a street fair, take some time to stop by. Have some fun. That's our show. I'd like to thank X-Ray FM Studios and special thanks to sound guy extraordinaire Arthur Risotto for recording this episode. I'd also like to thank my co-host Jason Traeger, our audio engineer, Gene Forte of Blue Heron Recording Studio, and our producer, Brandy Gaudette. Tune in to future episodes as we talk to people about inspiration, creativity, and mind-expanding ideas on The Magic Hour. 
It's never a bad trip. Never a bad trip. Never a bad trip.